Welcome to the podcast series Talking Success, connecting the global fintech community. I'm Stacey Jafter, and today I'll be chatting with Zachariah George, managing partner of Launch Africa. Launch Africa is a leading pan African VC fund, solving the significant funding gap in the seed and pre Series A investment landscape in Africa. Zach, how are you doing? Very good, Stacey. It's good to be here, and thanks for having me on your show. I'm so excited. This has been a long time coming. There's a lot we want to discuss. Eager to pick your brain about a few topics. But how's your last week? How's the last month been for you? Yeah, it's been good. We've uh, it's obviously winter in the global south in South Africa where I'm based. But I um, had the privilege of spending most of June in um, in Europe meeting our. Um, our investors and our fund, most of about 60% of our investors are from uh, are from Europe, uh, uh, primarily Switzerland, Germany, France, the Netherlands, and a few other countries. So we, we decided that we'd spend most of uh, summer when the, you know, when the sun's out in the north and people are in a good mood to meet partners. <laughs> Great tactic. Versus... Um, Versus, you know, uh, having to having to deal with the cold of uh, of South Africa in June, um, and it was it was uh, it was a very good trip. Um, you know, because you know we had uh, we had two years of uh, of COVID where we couldn't meet any of our yes. investors in person, and uh, you know you, you feel like you build these incredible relationships with uh, with LPs and LPs are short for limited partners. Uh, mm-hmm. You meet them on Zoom. You change. You change emails with them. But you know, getting to sit and have a meal with them across the table and, and share a glass of wine is just. Oh yes. It, oh it, yes. It, uh, it adds a human element to it. And you know, these are people that have entrusted us with uh, with hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of dollar mm-hmm. dollars of their of their hard earned capital, and you know, making the trip out just to go meet them without any agenda around. Um, you know, further funds or capital is just a good thing to do. So this was one of your first trips post-COVID. Have you seen a change in the way investors look at Africa and specifically fintechs in Africa? Yeah, I'd say the understanding of Africa as an investment destination has gone through quite a bit of uh, metamorphosis over the last uh, five years. I mean, as little as ten years ago, no one would ever associate innovation and venture and entrepreneurship with the African continent. The African continent was pretty much um, uh, in the same sentence as international aid or donations or grants mm-hmm. or, or just sort of you know maybe in certain cases foundations would look at it as uh, an extension of venture philanthropy. Yes, yes. And, um, you know, venture in Africa only really started taking off, I would say, the second half of the 2010s, so 2015 onwards. When I came to South Africa in 2010, 2010, 2011 had only about five to $10 million of venture capital on the entire continent. And that number has now gone up to over 5 billion in 2020. Yeah. So it's gone up by, you know, uh, a thousand, you know, a a thousand X in, um, you know, just under 10 years. So the understanding of venture capital and the opportunity to invest in, in, in tech and tech enabled entrepreneurs in Africa really started taking off about five years ago with the, with the revolution in fintech. And I'm glad that this podcast has a particular interest in fintech. 
And it's not because other tech companies, tech ventures, sectors aren't relevant. It's just that it's, it's you know, to build an ecosystem from the ground up in something like healthcare, education, infrastructure, mobility, logistics, supply chain cannot happen unless you have a solution around payments, right? Because Africa's 54 different countries, uh, and not just countries, um, multiple um, you know, tribes, regions, cultures, demographics, purchasing patterns, etc. It's 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 very hard to look at innovation in other sectors unless financial inclusion is sorted first. So people can't pay yeah, for something. Without a doubt, people can't borrow if they can't lend, if they can't save, if they can't invest. Then how does anything else make sense, right? So. So that's so 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 that was the you know one of the one, one of the industries that had to be disrupted first before others could. So if you look at the first major fintechs in Africa going back seven to eight years, so Paga and Flutterwave in Nigeria, Mpesa mm-hmm. uh, if you want to call it a fintech in in Kenya, in South Africa the first the first major fintechs if you look at Yoko look at Zona. And then fintech derivatives. It, it 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 the revolution, for lack of a better word, happened about five or six years ago, and it's now gotten to a point where fintech powers other industries. So if you look at retail, you look at insurance, you look at banking, you look at supply chain, they all have fintech elements of it. And yeah, the the uh, uh, the sort of venture capital ecosystem really started to grow once large corporates in South Africa, large corporates in Kenya, Nigeria, and to a certain extent, Egypt started to work with startups. Um, until, yeah. until, I mean, I've been in South Africa now for 12 years, more than 12 years. And, you know, corporates largely ignored technology startups because they viewed them as pretty much irrelevant um, and not really affecting their bottom line whatsoever. And then what happened about, Five years ago was the end consumers um, started to wield a lot of control and influence in the way corporates delivered products and services. So this this sort of shift in mindset was driven by consumers, not by producers. And that coincided with the start of the gig economy. People wanted to own less assets. People didn't drive enough cars. They didn't make enough food. They didn't study enough courses they were like if someone else is doing it let's just do it let's share let's share assets so we went from an asset heavy economy as little as seven to eight years ago to an asset light economy Uh, i'm talking in broad brushstrokes here but that's what started kicked it off in africa so zach before we go any deeper can you just give a brief overview on your career journey and then essentially what led you to become managing partner of launch africa just to set the scene yeah, it's quite a quite an interesting, un, uh, uncharacteristic, un, um, unconventional career. So I started off as an engineer. I went to uh, I grew up in the Middle East in uh, in, in Oman. Uh, I went mm-hmm. to university in the south of India to uh, a university called the IIT. Uh, it's called the Indian Institute of Technology. It's one of the most uh, technical universities in the world. It's where a lot of the modern tech CEOs from Google, Microsoft, et cetera, come from. Mm-hmm. Um, after four years in India, I went to Stanford, got my master's um, at Stanford and specialized in corporate finance and management. 
uh, obviously fantastic school and uh, spent the next eight years working on Wall Street as uh, okay. as an investment banker. So I was at Lehman Brothers until they collapsed. And then I was at Barclays for a couple of years. Um, and then just, you know, I found myself in South Africa in 2010 for the, the World Cup. Uh, the soccer great World experience. Cup. Yeah. And I had no um, specific uh, agenda, uh, but I just was completely confused. Did you come here on holiday? I was here on holiday. Yep. I was here on holiday. Until wow. Day. Okay. And, and uh, I just realized that there was a massive, massive opportunity in the, uh, I mean, venture capital was not even a word back then in Africa. Mm. So it was a huge opportunity in the SME world from a financing growth and scale perspective. And I just figured, um, you know, I was 28 at the time. And I just figured there was so much more to do. I started working very young, by the way. So 28 seems like young, but I've been working for almost, yeah, nine years before that. Uh, and I decided that I would, uh, you know, jump into the deep end and um, be part of a small group of people, mostly expats at the time, that would launch the venture capital industry on the continent back in 2010, 2011. But, it, but you know, we didn't launch a fund. What, what, what I ended up doing is, um, setting up venture building studios, the first incubator and the first accelerator in, uh, on the continent of Africa, funny enough, was set up by us in 2015 oh, wow. with, uh, with Barclays. It was called Tech Lab Africa, which later became Tech Stores. Um, yes, 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 yes. Yeah, Barclays Rise. Yeah. And, and then on the heels of that, um, I co-founded Startup Bootcamp in Africa, which is one of the largest accelerators for early stage technology startups globally. Um, you know, startup bootcamps, startup bootcamp is, is widely recognized or compared to Y Combinator, but in Europe, uh, Y Combinator tends to have a very American focus. Um, startup bootcamp was IC's equivalent in Europe. And then we, we helped bring startup bootcamp to, to Africa. So I co-founded that together with a guy called Philip Kirikoff. So we ran Startup Bootcamp for, uh, you know, from 2016, late 2016 till 2019. Um, Startup Bootcamp still runs uh, a very tight ship and a great uh, cohort. But remember, accelerators are a key part to the journey of a venture, but they're not the the be all and end all. So you've, yeah. you've got venture building studios, which are sort of ideation labs. You've got incubators that take ideas to prototype and an accelerator stake companies that are typically post prototype and get them to a point where they start to generate revenue and they have a monetizable business model. Um, what accelerators then do is they, you know, during these three months or six months, whatever the sort of modest, well, you know, the MO is you typically have between six and a 10% stake in a company in exchange for a small amount of money it ranges from as little as $20,000 to as much as a hundred thousand dollars or more. And you have a lot of non-financial support. So you're helping these ventures with, uh, with, uh, with tech, with IP, with marketing, with accounting, with business plans, with your business models, et cetera. So it's, it's, it's very intense. It's a combination of workshops, seminars, case studies, um, client interviews, and, you know, meeting investors, et cetera. So it's a very intense three-month program. 
yeah. search for equity. And you know, some of the top accelerators in the world are Startup Bootcamp, Y Combinator, Tech Stores, Founders Factory, Plug and Play. So yes, yes, yes. So yeah, so so we we ran that for three years. Um, Startup Bootcamp had a very unique business model where the program was funded by large corporates that helped with the distribution process for a lot of the top tech founders. So we had 10 companies in a cohort. We ran a cohort a year and they would help our portfolio companies with access to market, which is often the biggest challenge that founders have outside of just capital. So, you know, I co-ran that for three years until the end of 2019. And then I, I, I figured that, you know, the 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 missing part of this relay race is still, you know, venture builders, incubators, accelerators, what happens after that? So what typically would happen is you'd go through an accelerator and then you would start building, 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 slowly increasing your revenue. And once you got as close as possible to $100,000 in monthly revenue, often called MRR, monthly recurring revenue, you'd typically be ready for a Series A. Right, so so we noticed that ventures would take anywhere from two years to four years, or sometimes even more, up to five years, post accelerator to do a Series A round, and that is unacceptable. Um, that's just way too long in product development, way too long in customer validation. Whereas startups in the U.S. and in China and India and some parts of Western Europe were doing this in a year or two years. So that was sort of the the brainchild behind Launch Africa. I mean, I'd, I'd, run the, I'd co-run the largest accelerator in Africa, and I said, I've got a lot of access to really good founders from Egypt down to South Africa and every major geography in between. If we were to start a fund with smart capital from you know individuals, family offices, angels, and smart corporates, um, that could back the top graduates of these accelerators in their journey to getting to Series A, we could pretty much own the market. And that's what we did. We we were looking to start the fund with a very modest target of 10 to $15 million in capital. And uh, as I say, the rest is history. Um, how did you know that the investment world was for you? Like what intrigued you? So A, I've, I've never been cut out to work in corporate that's uh, that's something I realized very early on. I think one of the uh, <clears throat> when you go to a university like Stanford, where everyone in your class or that you come across, you know, in the hallways or in the cafeteria or just on campus, is is out there building something very unique. It be it you know a startup in the healthcare space, the education space, the uh, the financial services was every Stanford's a place where creativity is born and gets excelled mm-hmm. at, right? So it's not like, I mean, this is, I mean, I'm not, I'm not here on, on a mission to tell people how amazing Stanford is, but as an alum, I can say <laughs> this, um, there are certain business schools like Harvard, Wharton, MIT, Yale, et cetera, that, yeah, yeah. that, uh, that groom people to be great CEOs of corporates, but Stanford's not the university you go to do that. You know, you you come to Stanford because you are, uh, you know, inspired by people like, you know, Sergey and Larry from Google or 
mm. you know, the guys behind Yahoo or NVIDIA or, you know, Amazon. It's just, it's a place where people go, where, where nothing is impossible, right? So you say, if you, if you can dream it, if you can build it, there are people that will, you know, that you can surround yourself with to, to change the world. So I always knew that I wanted to be an entrepreneur, right? So that, but mm -hmm. being an entrepreneur requires you to have a lot of capital to start your business. So, yes. so the reason, yes. I, yeah, of course. So the reason I did not directly become an entrepreneur after Stanford was because I decided that I would have to, well, A, I had a couple of hundred thousand dollars in student loans that I had to pay off. So I went to Wall Street um, to basically help pay off those loans and build enough of a track record Uh, from a corporate finance perspective. And the thing about working at investment banks is it helps you develop a very analytical, logical decision-making mm. framework in order to make responsible decisions. And that's something that a lot of entrepreneurs that haven't had, you know, years in consulting and banking or private equity have. So it, it, it introduces a certain amount of fiscal discipline um, that is a great compliment to your creative, productive mindset that founders typically have, right? So after spending a few years in Wall Street, I just realized that I wanted to be an entrepreneur and I couldn't, and I would never, you know, excel working under authority and working for a paycheck, which is nothing, nothing wrong with that, but it just wasn't for me. But yeah, just, but being an entrepreneur and doing just one thing, just also didn't sit well with me because yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm probably undiagnosed ADHD where I, where I just have to do a lot of things. And the, yeah. the only career in my mind at the time that would allow me to, to use my financial and sort of business logical analytical mindset with the, or married with the creativity of a founder was an accelerator or a venture fund where you work with multiple founders solving multiple problems multiple regions, multiple products, and you're a mentor, an advisor, an enabler, and, and eventually an investor in multiple entities. And you get to benefit from the upside um, when any of these ventures or all of these ventures take off and you can see massive socioeconomic benefit to the beneficiaries of these ventures. So that's, that's sort of why I decided to get into the investment industry. And then what do you think makes someone good at investing? Is it a gut feeling, faith in the founders, or do you have more of an analytical approach? You mentioned going to Stanford and just Wall Street in general helped you just have more of an analytical mind, um, understanding that approach. But what do you think in general makes somebody good? It all depends on, on what stage you're investing in. So if you're investing very early into companies that are either pre-revenue or just barely post-revenue, it's mm. to a large extent, it's more of a gut than it's more sign. Yes. It's more art than science. I mean, no doubt about it. Yeah. Right? So no matter what someone's business plan says, they're going to be achieving in five years or 10 years. I mean, it's, it's, it's all thumb suck. It's, I mean, mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. it's just not worth the paper it's written on. So, Very smart early stage investors do a lot of diligence on the market, trends, margins, growth rates, user adoption, customer conversion rates. There's so much more. Well, there's a there. There's so much that goes into studying a business sector before you even talk to the entrepreneur. So let's assume yeah, someone yeah. is you know building a you know 
corporate expense management solution. I'll give you a real example of one of the companies we backed, right? Before I even or before our team even looks at the pitch deck of this company, we've done enough market research on you know, the target market, you know, what is the size of small businesses in, you know, let's say East Africa, for example, what is the average spend that employees have per month in, 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 in a given ecosystem? What is the conversion rates of, of, of corporate card spend? How easy is it to penetrate different markets uh, within, within that ecosystem? Uh, so so there, there's a lot of research that you have to do. And a lot of this research is available publicly or you have to do it through industry partners or institutions. Yeah. And then you have a conversation with the founder. And ultimately, you're, I mean, the first couple of meetings, you're just, it's, 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 uh, it's like dating. It's been said before, and I don't want to keep making comparisons, yes. but you want to just say, does this person or are these persons, founders, you know, throwing you a fake or are they talking sense, you know? So once you establish that these people are legit and that they know what they're doing and they understand the industry, then you start talking about their product. Way too many investors, you know, get sucked into a product sales. And it's like someone telling you how amazing a car is when you're buying a used car. Like, I don't care how, you know, what's, what's in the car. I want to know, you know, where am I driving? What am I doing? What's the, I mean, it's a bad analogy, but you know, like you don't, there's no point listening to a pitch deck or pitch from an entrepreneur. If you haven't done your market research as to what the customer uptake and industry trends are. So as a, as a VC doing early stage investments, you've got to do a lot more homework than, um, than one expects. And then once you, once you're on the same page and you understand that the entrepreneur is legit. They understand the industry. They have some experience. Then you start diving into the product, what it actually does. You start looking at competitors. I mean, the thing that people forget is VCs see hundreds, if not thousands of pitch decks every year, not a lot more. They often have a better understanding of a market than the founders, right? Just mm-hmm. not because you're smarter, just because they see more information, right? So, um, being a shoot investor requires a lot of prep work, significant amount of prep work. Um, and number two, you've got to be able to build a trust centric relationship with founders. If you don't have an element of trust where you are a mentor and a, and a, and a coach to a founder, not a captain, you never want to captain a founder. You want to coach a founder and you want to be able to add significant amount of non-financial value to a founder or a founding team that's how founders pick good investors and vice versa there's also no guarantee when funding a business and it's even more risky in the pre-seed phases you mentioned how do you hire for your internal vc teams like how do you challenge or test whether someone will be good at this you mentioned obviously the research being able to understand trends but is there anything else in the interview stage you look out for you mean like hiring for a fund? For your VC teams, yeah. It's not easy. There's uh, the skills that we look for in our team. I mean, let's let's be honest. I mean, like, uh, you know, we, we have been doing quite a bit of, you know, interviewing lately in the last few months. Um, you know, working at a venture fund has been glamorized a lot in the last few years, right? Um, it's been viewed as something very sexy or very interesting. It's very cool to work at a VC fund. 
but the reality is it's um uh it's it's a lot of work it is ex- it is an exceptional amount of work because you're dealing with multiple companies i mean in our case we've got more than 100 portfolio companies that we've backed over the last 2 years i mean you have to really like to be a good venture analyst you have to know a little bit about dozens of industries right it's like almost getting a mini mba whilst yeah. whilst you're doing work so you know i'm not i'm not uh, i'm not saying it's impossible but the, you know your reason to work in vc is not because you want to get paid a lot of money because i'm sorry to burst the bubble of all the listeners on this podcast but you, know, <laughs> you don't make a lot of money um if you work at a vc fund in the short term right i mean I make less money now at the age of 40 running a VC fund than I did at the age of, you know, 26 or 27 working at an investment bank. Okay. Um, you know, that's, that, that itself would be, you know, come as a shock. So you're saying don't do it for the money, but do it, do it for the, the interest in investing and the kind of businesses you get exposed to, or you're saying that it's more risky where you take the risk and it's a bigger payoff than going into investment banking. Yeah, you know, it's, 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 it's a mix of the two, but it's really, it's long-term versus short-term incentives in venture. You are, you are making calculated decisions on companies where you're getting in early and you have an equity stake in these companies until they mature, grow, exits, you know, sell or, you know, where you can do secondary invest, uh, secondary exits to, 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 to later stage companies. So your, your payouts in anywhere from five to 10 years could be, could be huge, could, could, could buy several degrees or factors, um, you know, surpass what you could ever work at a bank or make at a bank or a consulting firm, but it's skewed towards, um, you know, long-term incentives versus short-term rewards. So if you're doing it for a nice fat bonus every year in December, don't work at a PC, right? So it's it's incentives. And I'm sure that there's obviously not an exact formula that if you do this and this and this, this will end up being success because I think then everyone would go into it, use that formula. But have you seen any trend with your portfolio businesses that do better than others? Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host Matt Heslin brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. Oh, that's such a general question. I mean, honestly, I mean, if you, you, you're pretty much asking which portfolio companies succeed, which ones don't. I mean, you know, how long is a piece of string, right? I mean, yeah. It's sure. just, I would say founders that really understand their markets, understand the competitive advantage, um, uh, understand uh, user acquisition trade-offs, uh, understand. Uh, I think a key a key attribute to uh, uh, to running a good 
venture-funded business is the ability to, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm re-quoting Steve Jobs' famous commencement speech, which I happen to be at. Mm-hmm. If I mm-hmm. stay humble, stay foolish, right? So just be aware of what's happening in the industry, be flexible and be, be uh, you know, move like water, be able to adapt to changing industry trends. Don't get stuck on a particular product or a piece of technology just because you invented it or your co-founder invented it. Be, you know, be, be, be flexible, be, be ambitious, but don't be arrogant. A lot of founders have egos the size of Russia yeah. and, <laughs> and they, and they just, and they just cannot adapt. And then they die because ultimately, mm-hmm. you know, something, I think, what is the statistics? Something like 90% of startups fail within the first three years um, mm-hmm. of going and uh, a large part of it is because, uh, these founders fall in love with their product and they don't fall in love with their market and their customers. So if the customer wants mm, something else. I love that advice. Yeah. If, if, if a customer loves something, I mean, I mean, there's, it's such an old saying, but you know, when, when you're building a house and someone wants to put up a, a picture and they want to hang it up on the wall, they're not going to ask you for, you know, a 12 inch, drill bit they're going to ask you i want a 12 inch hole if you use a drill to fix it or you mm-hmm. or you do it manually or you use a pencil it doesn't matter yeah 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 i want the problem solved so the problem with a lot of founders is they they push product they don't push solutions they're very tech-minded yeah i mean tech is one part of it but you know if if you're not solving a problem for someone if if, if your focus is solving a customer's problem then um then the actual product should constantly change. You can't you yeah. can't have a static solution for a problem that constantly evolves. Right. So, you know, that's why I say to to founders, your R and D team is not a once off until you build a product. Your R and D is a constant part. I mean, the two most underfunded uh elements within a startup tend to be marketing and R and D. And those are the two things mm-hmm, that probably mm-hmm. need more money than anything else. So couldn't agree more. Yeah. So if, you know, once you're building something and you're selling product A into the market, your R and D team should be working on product B even before you've reached critical mass for product A. But you know, large corporates do it. I mean, you know, corporates like Apple and IBM and Adobe spend tons of money on marketing but they also mm-hmm. have a huge budget for R&D, right? So obviously scale that down proportionately for a startup, but you know, you, you need to always be thinking of what's happening in the market. You need to be thinking a year ahead, two years ahead. And those founders typically do well. And you know, founders that listen to their investors, listen to their advisors, and uh, are, are not afraid of being told what to do, but doing ultimately what's, what's in the best interests of the yeah. stakeholders. Remember as a founder, you've got multiple stakeholders, you've got your employees, you've got your investors slash shareholders, you've got your customers, your clients, and then you've got your suppliers if you're in that sort of vertical. And it's impossible to please everyone, but you have to really understand, uh, you know, how can you, you know, do what's in the best interest of your company and believe that, I mean, it's, it's, it's this whole like connecting the dots thing. Like you, you, you need, you need to be able to connect the dots going forward. It's very hard to do, yeah. but you have to trust in your gut 
and take the advice of people that are there to help you. Zach, before we wrap up, I wanted to finish the conversation we were having before we pressed record. We're seeing a lot of companies, mainly in the US and Europe, pausing on business plans due to the market predictions, whether that's pushing out a launch of a new product or entity or pausing on growth plans. Have you seen the same in Africa? No. I mean, so if you look at the stats, Africa is one of the only markets that is pretty much, count. I wouldn't say counter-cyclical, but in this economic turmoil we've had in the last quarter, I mean, the, the last three to four months, we've had a massive um, downscaling in, in, in venture mm-hmm. funding in Europe, North America, Asia, and Latin America. Africa is the only region in the world where you haven't seen uh, that throttle, that bottleneck. It's been the opposite. Why is that? It's because ultimately, if you think about it, the amount of capital sitting in the world is hasn't changed. It's just moved to different. It's moved mm. to different avenues. So, if someone's sitting with hundreds of millions of dollars in assets, it needs to find a home. You know, just because the stock market's on giving you returns doesn't mean you're going to now put that money under your mattress, right? Yeah. The proverbial mattress, right? So you're going to find. Yes, yes, yes. So you're going to find a home for it in regions of the world where you can get a better return. And, you know, in many cases that will be emerging markets and within emerging markets, you want to put it into projects, ventures that can deliver a social, economic and, you know, environmentally favorable return. And Africa tends to tick a lot of those boxes. Now, you know, is, is, is everyone doing that? No, not necessarily, but sophisticated investors globally are looking at Africa as an opportunity. We're content, we're content of 1.4 billion people with the world's youngest population. I mean, the average age of the African individual is 19, one nine. The average age of a European individual wow. is 46, Right. So just, you know, I'll leave our, you know, listeners and viewers to figure out, like, work the math out. You know, who are you building products for? Are you building products for a 46 year old that, you know, or are you building products for a 19 year old that is arguably more digitally and tech savvy and has a much bigger chance of increasing their share of a consumer's pie? So, you know, smart yeah. investors are seeing that. And yeah, we, we, you know, we have a temporary lull in the markets, but, you know, you know, Winston Churchill famously said, you know, never let a good crisis go to waste. And I think smart investors are seeing <laughs> that. So Awesome. Thank you so much, Zach, for being on the podcast. Thank you for sharing all your thoughts. It was great having you on. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm happy for folks to reach me um, by email or LinkedIn. And if they want to get more, because we are, we are in the process of setting up um, Launch Africa Fund 2 later this year. So, you know, not just entrepreneurs, if, if young people out there want to get interested in, or more interested in, in investing in future technology innovators on the African continent, you know, our, our fund is one of the one of the best ways to diversify your exposure to founders. I mean, we've, we've invested in, in, in founders from Egypt to South Africa and, you know, 20 different countries on the continent. And, um, it's a good way to get exposure to an asset class that uh, until about five years ago was pretty much privy of the, the rich and famous. So uh, I'm happy for people to reach out if they're interested in getting more involved. Fantastic. Thanks again. Thank you. Cheers. Have a good one. 
Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Talking Success, Connecting the Global Fintech Community. Feel free to follow us on LinkedIn at Talent in the Cloud. And if you're interested in exec talent, expanding your team, or you yourself are looking for a new, exciting change in your career, check out our website, talentinthecloud.io.